to celebrate the resurrection of our Savior. And so we come, once again, one final time, to the words of the prophet in Jeremiah chapter 32. Jeremiah 32. I'm going to begin reading in in verse 6, but you need to know that we're stepping into the middle of the action, into the middle of the story, and Jeremiah is in prison. He has given too many Debbie Downer sermons, and the king has said, that's enough, that's enough, Jeremiah, you're bringing us down, and so I'm putting you away. Uh, He is in prison, and then we pick up in the action in verse 6, Jeremiah 32, verse 6, I'll read through verse 15, and then read some uh, from later in the chapter. Hear now the word of the Lord. Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me. Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, will come to you and say, Buy my field that is at Anathoth, for the right of redemption by purchase is yours. Then Hanamel, my cousin, came to me in the court of the guard in accordance with the word of the Lord and said to me, Buy my field that is at Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, for the right of possession and redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. And I bought the field at Anathoth from Hanamel, my cousin, and weighed out the money to him, 17 shekels of silver. I signed the deed, sealed it, got witnesses, and weighed the money on scales. Then I took the sealed deed of purchase containing the terms and conditions and the open copy, and I gave the deed of purchase to Baruch, the son of Neriah, son of Meshiah, in the presence of Hanamel, my cousin. You're wondering how this fits with Easter? In the presence of witnesses who signed the deed of purchase and in the presence of all the Judeans who were sitting in the court of the guard, I charged Baruch in their presence saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, take these deeds, both this sealed deed of purchase and this open deed and put them in an earthenware vessel that they may last for a long time. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. And then go with me to verse 36. And we'll read a little section here to verse 41. Now therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning this city of which you say, it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and in great indignation. I will bring them back to this place and I will make them dwell in safety and they shall be my people and I will be their God and I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make them an everlasting covenant and I will not turn away from doing good to them and I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they might not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness, with all my heart and all my soul. Let's pray. Father, we come uh, to some extent to an unexpected text this morning, a text that talks about the details of a real estate purchase. And we come trusting uh, this strange text is from you, And that it is from you for our good, for our life, to reveal your heart and your soul, your wisdom and your grace to us. 
We're confident of that. If we're not confident of that, would you give us that confidence? Would you give us the humility to place ourselves under what you desire to say to us through your word this morning? Would you help us to hear? Would you help us to see? And would you change us by the power of Christ's resurrection? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll never forget the day, this was in the early 1980s, that my dad came home as the proud owner of a brand new LaserDisc movie player. Did any of you have a LaserDisc movie player? Not many of you are shaking your heads, and here's why. You see, the salesman convinced my dad that LaserDisc was the wave of the future. It was how people would watch movies. And so my dad bought it and he came home and we thought that we as a family were on the front edge of the advance of human civilization with our laser disc movie player. The problem was that as soon as my dad bought it, it became obsolete. We couldn't find, buy, or rent movies that worked in our LaserDisc movie player because in the format wars of the early 1980s, VHS cassette players won. (laughs) They won that war, and so our LaserDisc player became obsolete, not the smartest purchase my dad has ever made. Which brings me to Jeremiah 32. Jeremiah's cousin, Hanamel, he was one of those relatives who always has a deal for you. And he comes to Jeremiah in prison in Jerusalem and he says, Jeremiah, I've got a deal for you. I want you to buy this piece of land in our hometown. And God, the salesman, convinces Jeremiah to make the purchase, to buy that field. And it was a terrible deal. It was a bad investment because at that very moment, most likely the Babylonian army was camped out on the field that Jeremiah bought. And they were on their way in an unstoppable march to Jerusalem where they would defeat that city and take over this land. And all previous land ownership would be null and void, meaningless, worthless. This deed that Jeremiah so carefully had wrote and witnesses and witness was meaningless in the Babylonian Empire. It was a terrible investment, not the smartest purchase that Jeremiah ever made. And not only were the Babylonians taking over, but Jeremiah would have to escape to Egypt. And he would never set foot on this field that he bought. Not the smartest purchase he ever made. And here's my task this morning. My task is to convince you that Jeremiah's terrible investment strategy is a model for our lives. It tells us how we should live and has something to do with Christ's resurrection. All right, so that's my task this morning. We'll see how it goes. We're going to ask two questions. First of all, how do we make bad investments? Second, why should we make bad investments? All right, first of all, how do we make bad investments? To understand Jeremiah's purchase, we have to understand something about the economy that God designed for his people. 
He gave them a land and then he divided that land up between the tribes and the families of Israel. And then he put a system in place to protect those families from losing the land that had been given to them. This is what Hanamel talks about. Jeremiah's cousin talks about when he says, Jeremiah, you have the right of redemption. This is the system that God created. If one family member got in debt, got in financial trouble, and needed to sell a piece of property, it was the responsibility of another family member to buy that piece of property so that it stayed within the family. And even when that didn't work, God said after certain amounts of time, in what are called the Jubilee years, all land goes back to previous owners. All Boundaries return to their original state. Why? What's the point of this system? This isn't just cold economic theory. This system reveals God's passion. It reveals his heart. It reveals his desires. He desires to give to his people peace and wholeness and justice. And freedom and the land was one way that he worked to do that. And so he protected that desire. He protected his passion for his people to have life. Not only life, but life with him. Understand that the promised land wasn't just a home from God. It was to be a home with God. God. That was God's passion. That was his desire. It's why he created this system so that he could live at home with his people and so that they would know life from him. Peace and joy and freedom and justice. That was his passion. But the problem in Jeremiah's time is that it wasn't just one family member in trouble. It was the entire family of Israel in trouble. Losing their home with God because of their rebellion against God. And in the midst of that crisis, God says to Jeremiah, take that deal. Make that investment. Why? God is revealing that although the situation had changed, his heart Hadn't changed. His passion hadn't changed. He still longed to live with his people. He still longed to have a people who would live at home with him and know the life that comes from him. He had not given up on that passion and on that desire. And remember from last week that desire, that heart of God, it produced a plan. It produced a plan to bring back his people. It produced a plan for redemption. It produced a future of jubilee better than anyone had ever seen before. So God says to Jeremiah, put your money where your hope is. Jeremiah, I have revealed to you this future of Jubilee. Now put your money where your hope is. Buy in to my promises. Bet on my future. Invest in a way that anticipates what I have guaranteed to do, not only for my people, but for the world. 
That's how you make a bad investment. It is to know God's heart and his future and then to live accordingly. To live in anticipation of what he wants to do. Jeremiah wasn't the first person ever to do this. A couple of weeks ago, we finished reading the book of Genesis in our community Bible reading. Did you notice the land purchases in that book? The fathers and mothers of Israel wandering around the land promised to them but not yet given to them. And every once in a while they would buy a piece of it. And tuck this away for later. They would buy land in particular for the purpose of burial. Why? They were buying in to God's promises. They were betting on the future that he had guaranteed, that he desired and designed for them. They were coming to know God's everlasting covenant love and they were living out of trust in what that love would do for them and for the world. That's how you make a bad investment. It is to come to know God's desire and His design for the future and then live in anticipation of that future. Reminds me of a story that Jesus liked to tell. A man who sold everything he owned to buy one field. His friends thought he was nuts, but he knew what they didn't. That in that field there was buried a treasure. And Jesus said that treasure that makes the field worth it, that treasure is the kingdom of God. It is his heart It is His plan to reconcile and renew all things. It is His desire to fill not just one piece of dirt in Palestine, but the whole world with His glory and with His peace and with His justice and with His righteousness. You make good, bad investments by coming to know that love, that future, and then living in anticipation of it. Here are a few examples of how to do that. God says, in my future, there will be no tears. I will wipe away all the tears in my future. So that should move us as his people towards those who are grieving. God says, in my future, there will be no sin, no curse. So that should move us as God's people in resistance to sin in our own lives and to sin's ruinous impacts in our community, in our relationships. God said, in my future, there will be a congregation of every tribe and tongue and nation singing and glorifying me. And so that should move us as God's people in love, in service, in humility, across differences, across distinctions, across even divisions and conflict, to enact that unity, even now. We should live like the diggers, not the duggers, (laughs) the diggers. The diggers were a radical group of political revolutionaries in 17th century England. 
And their method of protest, I love this, their method of protest is that they would sneak onto land that was supposed to be common land, but was controlled by the wealthy aristocratic families. They would sneak onto that land and they would plant carrots. That was their protest. What were they doing? They were enacting the future that they wanted to see. They were saying this land should be used differently. And so we are enacting what the, the future that we want to see. That's how we should live. Maybe we don't agree with all of their political methods, but we should live enacting the future that God wants to see. We should live in anticipation of that. Where is your field? Where are your opportunities to invest in the kingdom desire and design of God? Where is your feel? It's not always in the dramatic. It is often in the ordinary. It is how we work. It is who we befriend. It is in how we parent and care for our spouses. It is in how we spend, yes, our money, but also our time, our other resources and talents. Where is your field? You see, here's the reality. In all of those ordinary movements and decisions, you will invest in some vision of the future. Which one will it be? Will it be God's plan for redemption? Or will it be your plan for maximum immediate comfort? You see, you are going to live by someone's economy, someone's set of values. Whose will it be? Will it be God's heart for generous jubilee, for compassion and justice? Or will it be our culture's desire for endless distraction? You will invest your life for a vision of the future. Which one will it be? Will you put your money, your time, your resources, your energy where your hope is? Will you put yourself where your hope is? Now listen, that is costly. That is sometimes painful. And it is often seemingly futile. Because we, like Jeremiah, don't often see the benefits. We don't often get the full yield for our investment. So second question, why would we do this? Why would we make these seemingly bad investments in God's design for the future? Why would we do that? Jeremiah was feeling the weight of that question. And so after he obeyed God, he prayed to God, beginning in verse 16. And in his prayer, he narrated the history of God's relationship with his people. And it's a history that ends in judgment. Jeremiah, in his confusion, says, God, you have said through me, you have announced judgment. And now you are accomplishing judgment through the Babylonians. But then 
You tell me to go and buy this piece of land. And then Jeremiah stops talking. (laughs) He leaves that tension in the air. And the implication is, what in the world is going on? Why would you call me to make this investment? And God doesn't leave that tension in the air. He enters the conversation in verse 26. And God does the same thing that Jeremiah did. He re-narrates the history of his relationship with his people. A history that ends in judgment. But then, in verse 36, God intrudes into that history with a therefore. Now, therefore, it's one of those logic words, isn't it? Premise, premise, therefore, conclusion. That is true, that is true, therefore, this is true. But here's the deal. God's therefore, in verse 36, is illogical. It's irrational. It doesn't follow. It's a non sequitur. Premise, rebellion. Second premise, judgment. Therefore, conclusion, I will never stop doing good for them. What? How can God be this irrational, this illogical? Well, the key is in something that Jeremiah said at the beginning of his prayer. He says this in verse 17. He says, God, you made everything. And so nothing is too hard for you. Better translated, nothing is too marvelous for you. God then takes that statement and he turns it into a question in verse 27 and he says, Jeremiah, you're looking at me in your confusion, but let me ask you a question. Is anything too marvelous for me? He asked that question before to another woman in the history of Israel. He asked it of Sarah. Abraham's barren wife who laughs with cynicism at God's promise that she will have a son. She laughs and then God asks her, is anything too marvelous for me? Jeremiah, that's why I want you to make this silly, absurd investment. Because nothing is too wonderful for me. And that's why we should invest our lives in the plan and the design and the desire of God's kingdom because nothing is too marvelous for him. Marilyn Robinson, a great novelist and author, she wrote, "To be astonishing seems to be the mark of God's great Acts. I love that. To be astonishing is the mark of God's great acts. That is why we should make this investment. Because God loves to astonish us. He loves to astonish this world. And that was a message in words to Jeremiah. But to us... That message became a person. You see, an angel showed up to a young woman named Mary. And he told her that she was going to have a baby named Jesus. 
And seeing her, her puzzled face, the angel echoes God's words to Sarah, God's words through Jeremiah, and says, Nothing is impossible with God. Jesus is the ultimate act of God astonishing us. And as Mary's son hung on a cross, breathing his last breaths, there was a man there. His name was Joseph. And the New Testament tells us that Joseph was looking for the kingdom of God. The New Testament also tells us that he had bought a piece of property. And like the fathers of Israel before him, he bought that piece of property for the purpose of burial. So as he sees his hope seeming to die, he remembers this piece of land. He remembers this tomb. He asks permission for the courts of Jesus. And he buries them in that tomb. But then God astonishes his creation. Because that tomb, unlike all the tombs that had gone before it, does not remain occupied. Jesus, as he walks from that tomb, is the ultimate act of God saying, Is anything too marvelous for me? Is anything too hard for me? Is anything impossible for me? That's why we should plant our lives as an enactment of God's future. Because God loves to astonish us. Because God's future has begun. You see, hope for Jeremiah was future deferred. Hope for us is future already started. God has started the work of His new creation Excuse me. So we comfort the grieving, not because we can overcome their sorrow, but because God has, become to over, has begun to overcome death itself. We fight against sin, not because we can win, but because God in Jesus has already begun the victory celebration. We move towards each other in costly love, not because we can redeem, but because God's redeeming love echoes from the empty tomb into every day of our lives. Will we have the faith to hear it? Will we have the faith to trust that that redeeming, resurrecting love is at work even when we can't hear it, even when we can't see it? See, watching for resurrection, it's a little bit like watching a sloth move. It is almost imperceptible. But it is irresistibly there in your life if you are in Jesus. The movement of His resurrection is at work now. So plant your life. Invest your life. Give your time, your energy, your resources to what God desires and designs for the future. Be an anticipation of that now. In your relationships, at school, at work, in how you participate in the life of this 
city. See, here's the thing about that Laserdisc player my dad bought. It actually was the wave of the future. Its technology became the basis for CDs, DVDs, and Blu-ray. It was the same for Jeremiah's purchase. It was the wave of the future, not because of technology, but because of God's desire and ability to astonish His creation with redemption. May it be the same for our lives. Waves of the future. Because we belong to the one who raises the dead. Let's pray.